0: Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This episode's great because I get to share with you a conversation that I got to have with Srinivas Rao of The Unmistakable Creative. He's got a brand new book out called An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And this is one of those ones where I saw that it was coming out and reached out because, one, the subject is exactly where I'm at personally. So I always want to bring you something that I'm interested in. But two, I knew you would like listening to this conversation because of the subject matter. In this conversation, we talk about the idea idea of having a shift in your thinking your perspective when you approach your creative work that it's not for large scale audience consumption but it's for creating something that is of quality and creating a lifestyle of creativity a, a creative practice that's fulfilling for you yourself that audience of one first and foremost But that if something were to come of that, which oftentimes is the case when someone is doing or approaching creativity or creative work from that perspective, great things can happen and often do. This book is also, in a lot of ways, an antidote to that problem of when you get involved with doing something creatively that is, when you get involved with doing something creative that you're passionate about, but you don't want to get tired of that work or treat that creative work as, quote, work that you have to do and feel, you know, under the deadline or under the gun or oppressed by because it's what you now make your living off of, this creative practice of having a fulfilling, creative lifestyle is a lot of the antidote to letting that happen. So I know that this is a conversation that a lot of people need to hear, and maybe as you're listening to it, think of somebody that you could share this conversation with and maybe share it with them after you've heard it. Enjoy this conversation with Srinivas Rao. This week, I'm thrilled to bring back Srinivas Rao to the show. Welcome back, Srinivas
1: Thanks so much for having me back, Eric. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I really enjoyed our last conversation, so it is uh, cool to be here for round two.
0: Yeah, so did I. And I think of all the people out there that I still have, (laughs) you know, confession, a little bit of envy of, it's you do an amazing show, and you're doing something that I aspire to. And so, like, even for example, I see you do an Instagram Post where you're like I'm upping my game and you're taking a a picture of the ah what's it called the title's escaping me but it's you you know you're it's all about how to interview better basically the book was
1: yeah yeah I I, you know it's called the uh, I think the art of the interview by Lawrence Grobel and it's so funny because I had a chance to to talk to Cal Fussman yesterday who was really kind of uh, a master of the craft himself and it's one of those things that I I realized uh, at a certain point that. Yes, you could put a lot of effort into marketing, to driving podcast downloads, to doing all sorts of stuff that we do in order to have more people see our work. And I also realized that you could put that same effort into becoming really good at what you do. And as somebody who has uh, grown probably much more slowly than the average person, despite the fact that I've had a, a much bigger head start than most people, I realized that I am more of a creator and less of a marketer, and that my true strength and my my gifts lie in my ability to get better at this rather than becoming a better marketer. Now, I'm not saying that you should completely ignore promoting your work. I think that that has to happen and eventually it will be revealed for what it is. So, let's say you have something go viral or something gets millions of downloads, but people feel that you've pulled a bait and switch on them because uh, what they have experienced doesn't match up to the expectation that you've set with them so you know, we've had posts that go viral you know one we had this one piece titled uh, five things i had to give up to be successful which is you know super clickbaity in terms of, of headlines but uh, my my content strategist said he's like this is like the ultimate bait and switch because he said it's it's a bait and switch in which they're expecting clickbait and instead they get this like three thousand word diatribe of of you know every every detail of the things you had to give up and it's interesting because we live in a world where we are more and more being conditioned to pay attention to things that don't require sustained attention and require short attention spans. And, and I think it's really funny because if you if you try to pitch an article to a, a major media outlet, for example, uh, Business Insider, and I'll happily call them out, they're very particular about the fact that they want clickbait. Uh, I, I remember the, there was a piece that somebody wrote titled 30 Things I've Learned from 30 Years, very similar to my sort of annual birthday post. Mm-hmm. Mine was like probably the equivalent of a book. It could have been turned into a book. This person wrote 39 sentences, and they actually are 30 sentences, one sentence each, and they took that and posted it. And that's that's a commentary in my mind of, of what we've started to value as a, a consumers of media. But more important, when creators are at the point where that is the way they're driving people, I think that to value a short-term connection with a person who is in your audience as opposed to a long-term sort of sustained uh, connection with somebody it might work, it might drive advertisers, it might drive eyeballs, but the thing is that I'm not interested in having somebody pay attention to what I'm doing temporarily. I want them to be affected by my work for a very long time, ideally, uh, to to stay with what I've built for a long time.
0: Totally. And you're, you're hinting at some of the so-good-they-can't-ignore-you stuff from Cal Newport, uh, as well as some of the stuff that Ryan Holiday talks about in his latest uh, Perennial Seller, which is basically mm-hmm. stop figuring out how to get people to see your stuff and make better stuff that people that do see it can't help but share.
1: Yeah. I I think that we, we really don't place nearly enough emphasis on process and we place so much emphasis on product um, and the the external results of a product, which is, is it's hard not to have that be an important part of what you do, but we put a lot of effort on all the ancillary things that surround our creative work and, The funny thing is, if you look at people like Ryan Holiday and you look at people like Cal Newport, the results kind of speak for themselves.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I was literally just talking to Cal an episode or two ago. I mean, I basically said to him, look, you don't use social to push your stuff. You just create great work and it becomes bestseller because of that. There, I think, is kind of where you're going in your new book, which is cool because, again, you're one of those people where I'm like, hey, I want to talk to them whenever they do their next thing, no matter what it is, because – of the high quality and caliber of the work that you're doing, which is ironic because of what it is that you've next done. In fact, I had my own hardcover copy before you did.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was really funny. I remember seeing that on Instagram. And I, I remember sending my editor an email Said, how is it that people who are not me have this book and I don't?
0: <laughs> so uh, let's get into this a little bit. Let's I mean, let's let's basically, you know, again, this is one of those, hey, I'm pitching a book, but not pitching a book conversations, which yeah. is a little ironic As well for the subject matter that it is, because it's called An Audience of One Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And there's the rub. It's like, once we get into what the subject matter of the book is, it's kind of ironic that we're here talking about it to make people aware of it. In other words, marketing. But it's it's kind of a necessary evil in some senses. But at the same time, like we just said, you create that great work for yourself, for that audience of one. And. It's, it's a little ironic again now that you have to kind of say, okay, it was for an audience of one when I made it for me, but now it's an audience of consumer. Hey, you buy this thing,
1: please. Yeah, it, totally. It, there's no question that it is uh, for a consumer at a certain point, right? You don't write this thing to hope that it, it lingers in obscurity and exists in a vacuum. Of course, I want it to reach a lot of people. Of course, I want people to buy it and I want people to be affected by it. But the the thing that I think is really difficult about this is that there's a certain point in the process by the time the ink dries on the page, by the time the publisher submits, submits this thing to production, and by the time it ends up on somebody's doorstep, my role in this process is is somewhat over. Uh, you know, Obviously, I can come and I can have conversations like this one with you, but it's really hard not to get attached to the results of something that you've put two years of your life into. I would be lying to you if I said that it doesn't matter to me at all how this book does. At the same time... In the process of writing the book, if I'm thinking about all of those things long before this book has ever come out – then I am doing myself and my audience a great disservice because it would end up having a a negative impact on the work because you're putting energy and time and effort into something which you have no control over. And I think that we do that a lot. One of the things that is really interesting that I heard Ryan Holiday say, because we do these best of episodes every Friday where we take something from our archives. And in this case, what we've been doing for the sake of promoting the book is by by airing interviews with people who... uh, appear in the book. But one of the things that really struck me about what Ryan said is that he actually never talks about a book until it's finished. And that really kind of blew my mind because that means that everything that Ryan does is basically focused on producing the best product that he can produce. And that means that your focus is on the process, not the results that may or may not come. And for him in particular, it's interesting because he's written books that always have a long tail. His second book, uh, Obstacle is the Way, it wasn't successful until two or three years after it came out. A lot of people don't know that it was two, 300,000 copies. After that, you look at somebody like Danny Shapiro, who has just got a a lyric gift with words, the way she writes sounds more like music. And, you know, it was her third book that put her on the map. And so I don't think that people realize that it's not this one sort of moment in the spotlight that really drives you. And not not only that, I, I think that Everybody who's ever done this uh, will tell you that probably the most empty feeling, the most hollow feeling is that moment when you hold the book uh, in your hand for the first time, partially because it's done. You know, suddenly there's a sort of postpartum depression almost that you go through. But it's not the, the work itself, but what the work represents that is so much more meaningful to somebody who gets to do it. You know, when you hold this thing in your hands. It's not, hey, wow, what a beautiful book cover or how cool is it that there's a penguin on the spine, but rather, wow, this represents you know, countless hours sitting in a room, overcoming resistance and, and having these days of inspiration and, and days in which you're seeking to, to figure out how to get to whatever it is that you're wanting to say. And that is the biggest part of the process. And, and if you don't enjoy that, and if all you're willing to do is endure that in order for the moment in the spotlight you do yourself a great disservice because the moment in the spotlight, the moment in which I get to talk to you about this is one really small fraction of this entire process often will ask me, what are you going to do the day the book comes out? Uh, you know, Somebody asked me that on the day that the la- my last book came out and I said, well, I'm going to go to uh, the place that I surf and I'm going to get in the water and I'm going to surf and I- I'm going to wake up and I'm going to write a thousand words because that's what I do every morning. Uh, this isn't about just one book. It, it is an about one blog post, I think that ultimately, it, it really, it has to be about a love for the work. Because if you don't love the work, it's so hard. It's not an easy thing to do to build a, a creative career, a creative a career in the arts. You know, I think Jeff Goins did a wonderful job dispelling the myth of the starving artist and the fact that you can, in fact, make a living doing your creative work. But that doesn't absolve you from the fact that you one have to work really hard. two, you have to endure the uncertainty. And three, the the challenge is that you really don't know how your work is going to be received, and you can't do your work in constant need of validation from an audience.
0: Often, as a creator, we get a little bit hesitant or you know, different words like that, fill in the word for you that, oh no. If I continue to do this creative work and have the pressure of it being my thing that I gain my income from, that at some point the work is going to turn sour or I will turn sour on the work, I should say, Mm -hmm. because of that pressure on the work. And your book is, in fact, for me, pretty much the antidote to that. It's all about flipping it. Into a different perspective of doing the creative work for yourself first, and then how you go about ordering that new lifestyle, that new perspective, where you're creating for yourself, and then you move forward. And, oh, yeah, you know, because you're doing it for an audience of one. And that's not to say that you wouldn't have, like, friends or trusted allies. Critique it every once in a while, and we can go there later. but. Really, you're not creating for a mass audience. You're creating for the sake of the quality work first. If something happens to come along and be worthy of sharing, great. But what's hard for people is this seems like a contradiction to productivity. It seems like creating in private is a poor use of your time because you should be creating mass quantities consistently for someone else to see it so that It has at least one use or multiple uses for like a podcast, a book, a blog post, etc. And that's not the right approach.
1: Yeah, I, I think the the really interesting thing about this is that if you look at the research, uh, and this has been done by other people, and, and I want to give them credit. So Adam Grant, in his book uh, Originals, actually talked about this. He said, you know, if you look consistently across people who produce high quality creative work, the the one common pattern is that they produce a high volume of creative work. James Clear actually said this. He summarized it beautifully so much so that I actually turned that little nugget into an article for for a Fast Company, where he said, you know, professionals create on a schedule, amateurs create when they feel like it. And uh, I, and that's why I abide by this habit of a thousand words a day. And I, I've literally seen this con- pattern consistently across every prolific creator that I know. Uh, ben Hardy, uh, my friend, who's the number one writer on Medium. Twice a week, there's something on Medium from Ben Hardy. Ryan Holiday mm-hmm. writes one book every year. That's creating on a schedule. Danny Shapiro, who's an incredible writer, five days a week. And I, I think that you really, really do have a lot more power when you create on a schedule. The thing that's nice about this idea of doing your work in private without this constant need for for validation, this constant need that the work has to meet some standard that you have absolutely no control over is that it actually liberates you. There's a, a strange paradox, right? When you're not doing your work in service of an audience, you're ironically much more likely to, to resonate with them because when we do our work, primarily in service of you know uh, an audience or more importantly primarily in need for validation not necessarily in service of an audience because i think you know, inevitably you do serve an audience when your creative work interacts with the world but if you're Entire drive is to be validated by those people in some form or another, you're already hosed out of the gate because you're going to change your work. You're going to change what it is that you want to say. And as a result, you have a much less authentic form of self expression. And so suddenly you are starting to basically do things like create clickbait. Or you might think to yourself, well, hey, this author wrote about this subject, so if I do this, I'm going to end up with that same result. And, of course, this kind of goes back into the the content of my previous book, which we talked about, which I, I think that the it's a wonderful thing that we have access to so many people who are world-class at what they do, who are experts in their fields. But the, the downside to that is that a lot of these people who have big platforms have not only been placed on pedestals, but people take a look at their work and they say, okay, you know what? This is the formula for success. Like Uh if I follow this guy's whatever method for blogging, I will end up with his, uh, results. Or I think that they're, you know, podcasting courses in which somebody says, okay, well, this guy started a podcast and he did it this way. And if I do it exactly this way, I'm going to get the same results. But what you don't see is the fact that, well, yeah, that worked for that person because he's that person and it's aligned to his unique strengths. So when people don't do that, what you end up having is, effectively what is an echo chamber. And so you end up losing a lot of authenticity because of that. And I think that the the work actually suffers. And I think the thing that has always been a real driver of how I, I do what I do at Unmistakable Creative is that I've never been interested in Following tactics, I choose guests based on what it is that I'm genuinely curious about. Uh, I think that part of the reason that we have such a diverse guest roster is the fact that I've never limited myself to, oh, well, if I interview this famous person and uh, you know, they'll lead to a lot of downloads, truth be told, our most popular guests are the people that most people have never heard of. And I've said no to some really well-known people, people who everybody who's listening to this probably have heard of.
0: Still, first and foremost, you're trying to make a program, a piece of art that. If you listened to it, you would be like, "Ooh, I want to subscribe to this."
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is there is no question about that. I think I've said before, you you create stuff that you would want to consume. So this whole listening theme,
0: like, really got me, and uh, I kind of need to go through it all over again in the book. Which is why, again, I'm saying, like, I read through the whole book and loved it, but I need to reread it. You know, I need to listen to the book again, basically.
1: Well, I mean, I'm glad that you got through it uh, really quickly. That, that, that to me is a good sign. The fact that you want to read it again makes me even happier.
0: Again, going back to the Jeff Goins book, you can make a living. But then when we start moving into that trap of monetizing every moment of our output, again, I love that this is an antidote to that, where it's not about the monetization up front. It can be later. But again, that's not the perspective from the starting point. It's all about the process.
1: Yeah, and I think that... Throughout history, this turns out to be true. Now, it's interesting to talk about monetization and the ability to be successful with your creative work, because I think that what people often think is that, oh, if I'm successful with my creative work, I'm going to get to have this moment in the spotlight. I'm going to get to be on some list or I'm going to get to be on a podcast that is listened to by thousands of people. The thing that I realized, uh, and it's taken me 10 years to come to this realization, is that. When you're successful with your creative work, what you really get from that is the opportunity to keep doing that work. That to me is the ultimate reward. Uh, if you're commercially successful with your creative work, you get to keep playing what Seth Godin uh, refers to as the infinite game because it is an infinite game. It's a game that you don't play to win per se, but you play to play. I, somebody asked me a while back what was my goal with writing books. And I said, well, you know, and most people who, who write books say, well, my goal is to use the book to, to launch it to 20 other things. And, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, I like the fact that I get to do public speaking. Engagements because of the fact that I've written books, but that's not the primary goal either. Uh, I, the, one of my primary goals with writing books, especially if I want them when I you know, when they're commercially successful, is that I get the opportunity to write more books. Um, that to me is really the the reward because as yeah you know, we were talking about, I, I think that I really value the process. I, I really do. I, my favorite part of the day is, is from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. when I'm, I'm sitting quietly in a room reading and writing. That is, to me, it's, it's therapeutic. It's healing. Uh, I, I find that that is one of the best parts of my day. And whether somebody is paying me to write books or not, that is something that I'll be doing for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah, that goes back to that whole uh, it's a phrase that's been kicked around a lot, especially when, you know, you get it caught up in the entrepreneurial echo chamber where it's find something that you'd be willing to do for free and then figure out a way for people to pay you for it mm-hmm. or something yeah. along those lines. It's, it, and, and that's fine, but it still feels like there's that tacked on piece of find a way for people to pay you for doing it. When I think that again gets misconstrued into figure out a way to sell thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of it instead of being content to even just be a blue collar author or podcaster in, in the sense that there are levels, which again, that's a whole other thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's no question about it. If you're not finding contentment, and I think that that is one of the sort of great uh, disservices that we as a group of creators and entrepreneurs, particularly in the circles that you and I run in, have actually done to, to people is that we have. In a lot of ways, and I think that I'm as guilty of this as anybody, given the nature of the people that I talk to, we've perpetuated this mantra that... This is only worth doing if it leads to a million fans or followers or thousands of book sales or whatever it is. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways. And I wrote about this. I said what we've effectively done is we have simply replaced one definition of success, which is societally approved, with another de- a definition of success that is approved by this little ecosystem of you know misfits and instigators and entrepreneurs and and you know digital nomads we've created a all we've done really is we've just replaced that society version of success with this version of success and I think that as a result we've actually contributed to our own unhappiness in a lot of ways I think that we've planted seeds of dissatisfaction where there previously weren't any you know and don't get me wrong I think that a lot of people who do this work have done wonderful things. They've made wonderful contributions. My life has changed in immeasurable ways because of a lot of the ideas that I have been exposed to. And at the same time, I am very cognizant of the fact that, wait a minute, are we really planting seeds of, of potential dissatisfaction? I had a listener who emailed me once, and I never forgot this, who said, I want to tell you thank you for the podcast, but I have to stop listening. These stories are actually making me really unhappy. And he told me why he said, because when I listen to these people who are incredible and amazing, what happens is my my tendency to to compare is triggered and and I actually feel worse about my life. And I I, the the funny thing is that I I think that you could probably relate to this as, as an interviewer. I've when that becomes the filter through which you see the world and that becomes your reference group by which you judge success. That really is a skewed perspective. One of my mentors told me, he said, "It's got to be hard." He said, "Because you suddenly have gone from my version of success is no longer, hey, I got a, a you know college degree from a, a fantastic university. I got a graduate degree. Uh, now success is basically measured on through the lens of the people that you interview, and they're outliers. So you're you're basing your entire reality on a group of outliers." And that becomes the expectation. And of course, you know, when you have expectations, those real expectations really, as as Seth Godin said, are are the killer of joy. Well, when it comes down to it, what is your measure of success? I mean, I know you want this
0: book to sell, but really, what's the more important or most important piece here for you?
1: Well, I I think the... There are two things, I think, that really matter to me. One is that I have created something that I'm proud of and and would happily sign with pride and put my signature on. I think that's a big one. The other thing that... Is really important to me is that I've created work that has emotional resonance, that it affects people emotionally in some way, mainly because I think that if you can affect somebody emotionally, you can drive them to action. Whereas if all you do is give somebody information, that's a very different approach to how you tell stories. So the funny thing is that if you were to try to say, okay, these are the tactical pieces of advice from an unmistakable creative interview, and you asked 10 people what they were, you'd get 10 very different responses from people. And that's by design because I want to give people a compass, not a map. I want them to get to destinations they've never been to before, not just to get to destinations that other people have arrived at. And so the nature of what we do is we tell stories that are emotionally resonant that lead to outcomes that you can't necessarily mold or predict. So I'll I'll give you some examples. Uh, What I love, I think the most rewarding thing about building unmistakable creative has been to see the the sort of unexpected ways and unexpected outcomes uh, in the ways that people use our content so for example we have parents who homeschool their children using the content of unmistakable creative right. uh, we have Professors who assign interviews as part of their curriculum with therapists who counsel their patients using uh, content from unmistakable creative We have coaches who share it as part of their own coaching practice. And, and that to me is, is really rewarding because you can't, those are the, the kinds of things where you have a, a sort of immeasurable ROI. You know, it's what I call the infinite value of things that can't be measured.
0: So that's the, you know, high level. That's the current level of, Hey, this thing that you took a long time on and, you know, you held in your hand and you're like, it represents a lot of different things. But what then does success for you look like, say, on a daily basis? Is it, is it that you've gotten that six to eight AM time slot in or is it a great wave that you've ridden or, you know, how does that look like? Because again, that's really what going back to that audience of one looks like in terms of you know, rhythms and rituals and routines and true success, you know?
1: Yeah. I I think that you've, you've hit the nail on the head with some of it. Absolutely. If I've honored the commitment that I've made to write a thousand words I've checked off one of the boxes of what success looks like. Absolutely, without a doubt, if uh, I have a good surf day, that checks off a box. Uh, if I get to spend a day on a mountain, if I get to spend time with close friends, all of those things actually have a, a big impact in terms of the boxes they check off for success. I, I think that you really do have to, to come up with your own definition. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, you know, like a, we, we arbitrarily assign numbers to the things that we want to accomplish, particularly when it comes to a goal like income. and. I'd never actually done this. I never thought about, okay, what are the things that I want to spend money on and how much do I need for all of those things? And, and I've been meaning to do this. This is an exercise that I'm going to go and do probably within the next day or two is literally make a list of of the things that I I definitely know I want to spend money on. For example, I know that I want to spend money on travel. I know that I want to always have a season pass for uh, a ski resort because of the fact that I, I snowboard. And so Once you have a sense for, okay, what is this going to cost me? I think that answers a lot of questions as to what your priorities should be. And priorities are another thing we can talk about. I think that it was so interesting. I heard this interview with Laura Vanderkam the other day where she was saying that, you know, the things that you say you don't have time for are really just not a priority. You think about it this way. Uh, You have friendships, right? And the people who are close to their friends, they don't say that they don't have time for a conversation. But the people who you hear from once in six months, you're kind of thinking to yourself, well okay, if all you have is once in six or seven months to be able to talk to me, that tells me that it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of the fact that this friendship is not a priority. People always ask you, how do you find the time to read or write? And I said, well, that's it's a huge priority for me. So I I find the time. I think that when something is a priority, the time somehow magically just makes itself appear.
0: Yeah. you You subconsciously are seeking to make the time for it. It's, it's less of a, you know, lift the hammer and break, you know, you know, hammer down on your calendar. Okay. I've got to, I've got to carve out specific times. Although sometimes it can be that way to start with, you know, mm-hmm. if, I mean, if, if you've been off course with certain habits or, you know, cause I can think of friends that I'm just like, dang it. I have let that relationship linger and it is on that once in six months kind of a rotation. And it really shouldn't be. It should be more like, you know, once a month at minimum, Mm -hmm. it's going to take me intentionally breaking the old ways down and then putting things in place so that it becomes so that even my relationships get into kind of a flow state. Right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there's no question about it. It's, you know, I think that when you make those things a priority, it, it just, it's very clear. I think what your priorities are is based on how you spend your time. We're going to take a quick
0: pause on this conversation to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode. First up, this episode is brought to you by Gusto. Gusto is the easy payroll benefits and HR solution for the modern small business. You don't have to be an expert in those things like taxes and regulation in order to do your payroll. Most small businesses don't have an HR expert even, but you don't need one because you've got Gusto. Gusto has great software, great service, and that enables you to focus on your business, not the payroll or the paperwork. You don't have to be a big company to get great technology and great benefits and great service for your team. With Gusto, you get a lot, like automated tax payments, filings, and forms. You get flexible payroll, integrations with a lot of the different time-tracking software, and of course, Gusto's great, friendly service. So to help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today, and you'll get three months free when you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash beyond. Again, You'll get three months free when you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash beyond. And this episode is brought to you by Babbel. If you've ever wanted to learn and speak confidently in a non-native language, Babbel is the answer for you. I wish that I had Babbel when I was learning French in high school because I would have mastered it. I got okay at it. But Babbel has these easy 10 to 15 minute lessons that are available as an app or online. Then you can get over feeling like you're bad at languages because using Babbel, you get taught the right way. You learn how to use the language in practical situations like chatting with friends or ordering food or asking for directions, things that you will use. And you learn through interactive dialogues and speech recognition and fun trainers and quizzes. And you're going to retain and remember More of what you learn with Babbel. So you can try Babbel for free. Go to Babbel.com or download the app and try it for free. Again, go to babbel.com. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com and download the app there or sign up there at Babbel.com. So I, I think it's very interesting to to see, you know, that it's not happiness and success that are coming from this finished final product going out into the world and selling thousands and thousands of copies for you that really now that's nice it'd be great if it Mm -hmm. does and it really should people really should pick the book up but my point being is that that's like the peak of the mountain and there's a lot more time in between those mountains than people are willing to admit
1: yeah the thing is that the the idea that you're gonna reach this uh, mythical goal or mythical mountaintop and that it's going to provide you with everlasting happiness is really a a myth. I think that anybody who has accomplished this goal will tell you that because I, so yeah, I'll tell you when I didn't have a book deal, the goal of getting to have a published book seemed like this elusive, amazing thing. And when I finally signed the contract, I thought this is amazing. I'm going to be on cloud nine for the rest of my life. But within a year, uh, not even within a year within a few months that just became my new normal uh the fact that i had a second book to work on right after i was done with the first book i I didn't feel that this was that big a deal to say okay well yeah i get to to publish a book which it is it it, you know i i think the number of people who get this opportunity are not many and but this and you, you you know you you think okay i'm going to be appreciative of that forever which would be lovely if that was the case but it's not and that's because uh what happens is you experience what's called hedonic adaptation your standards change that becomes new so suddenly what happens is that people you know before i got the book deal basically my peer group and the people that i was comparing against uh, because we do compare no matter how you slice it, like it's just a, a natural tendency, were other people who didn't have book deals. Now I was no longer a person who didn't have a book deal. So my new reference group is all people who are published authors. And the pinnacle of, of success is not get the deal. It's oh, New York Times bestseller or you know, thousands of copies or whatever it is that becomes a success. And and that's that's a really hard thing to to keep wrestling with because the goalpost keeps changing. You know, I, I don't think that there is a point at which you say, okay, you know what, I've accomplished confidence goal, and now that I've accomplished this goal. I'm going to be happy forever. Uh, So that is why I think it's really important that you find uh, a sustained sense of happiness. I think that that's why when we have a process that we depend on, something that we can come to every day, a practice, that provides you with a sustained sense of happiness far more than uh, the achievement itself.
0: Yes, exactly. And, And again, I think that is, again, hinting at why I kind of call your book that antidote to this I don't know, pl- plague. Well, it, to the illness of thinking that again, um, you have to go by everybody else's definition of success or new normal. When in fact, the new normal really needs to be that you're content and happy with the work that you're doing consistently on a daily basis, especially when it's not necessarily something that's coming to fruition as a, you know, a mountaintop experience and and again, this is where I think a lot of people need to hit pause and say, you know what? I need to cultivate a creative lifestyle or habit or whatever you want to call it for my own life that does not predicate on being dictated by outside sources.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that is that to me is the key to unlock a lot of things, right? Because you get to create in volume. You get to find joy in what you do. And inevitably, as a result, the paradox this is the the ultimate paradox I said of creative work is that what you create for an audience of one is much more likely to reach an audience of millions it's It challenges every bit of conventional wisdom that we have about this process but you know if you look throughout history uh you know, if you look at commercially successful projects on the internet, from Humans of New York to Brain Pickings to Post Secret, I just had a a, ch- a chance to chat with Frank Warren, the creator of Post Secret. All of these projects started out because somebody had a creative impulse that they decided to express to explore, not because they thought that it would lead to riches and fame and to to audience members. And ironically, those are some of the most successful creative projects on the internet, as opposed to the ones where the intent right from the start was to become commercially successful. And it's interesting because this isn't just isolated to the internet. You look, I mean, we talk about this in the book a little bit, but if you look at sort of iconic creators in history, they all shared this, Mindset and common. David Bowie, for example, there's a quote where he said, "You know, I didn't strive for success. I started to do. I, I strived to do something that was artistically relevant." Uh, Oprah, of all people, uh, yeah, reaches literally millions, probably hundreds of millions of people with her work. And there was a time when uh, Oprah was not doing as well in the ratings as, say, Donahue or or any of those shows that basically, for lack of something less crude, or just giant piles of crap uh, in which they showcase the worst uh, of society and, and just problems that really, honestly, are sensationalist and awful. And she decided to elevate herself out of that. And the result of that, of course, was that she ended up being far more successful in the short term. Yes, she sacrificed ratings. I mean, the results kind of speak for themselves.
0: I love it that Oprah didn't stoop to the level of basically becoming the buzzfeed of daytime talk shows.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, that that that's absolutely true. And, and you have there is plenty of opportunity to do that. There are podcasts that are in the top 100 in iTunes that probably fall into that category, which is fine if that's what you want to create. And that's the the, the group of people that you want to cater to. I was never interested in catering to the lowest common denominator.
0: I think a lot of people out there are like, okay, how do I start to walk down this path of creating a creative perspective that is all about creating for an audience of one, creating for myself, doing my best creative work, not for eventual monetary gain, but because – I can be happy with just the creating right now. And if something, you know, comes out of that, great, but that's not my ulterior motive. How do you guide people down those first few steps if that's where they're at right now?
1: Yeah. So I think this actually uh, makes a perfect segue into getting into the tactical aspects of the book, because a lot of books of this nature, I think, do a great job of inspiring people, but they also don't give people actionable steps to implement. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that, just given the nature of my work at Unmistakable Creative, blending principles from social science and behavioral science and psychology to talk about how you do this. And more than anything, what it comes down to is habit formation and treating this as a creative practice. So I actually recently wrote a piece about this on medium t- titled the, uh, the five essential ingredients to a lifelong creative practice. So the thing is, if it's a practice, that means it's something that you do consistently. Every practice is driven by rituals. It's driven by routines. So in the case of, of my, um, practice, it's writing. So we'll use that as the example, but this could be applied to any example. Uh, a practice needs a time, uh, when you're going to do it. For me, that's 6am to 8am every day. It's the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, it's more important to me than everything else. And so that's why I've made it the number one priority of my day. Nothing else starts until I've done that. I don't check email. I don't go on Facebook. I don't use my phone. I don't do any of that until I've gotten done with this one thing. Uh, it has a specific place. So for me, that's in my, my bedroom where my desk is. And so if you have a specific place, that's great. The, the reason that the, the specific place is important is because of the fact that when you keep showing up day after day at the same time in the same place, what will happen is that the environment that you're in and your behavior in that environment will eventually get linked. So, for example, I know that when I sit down at this desk at 6 a.m. and I've finished my meditation and I have a cup of coffee, it's time to write. My brain knows that. There's no question. So the the environment and the behavior are inevitably linked. Um uh, and then you have to decide what what is the habit going to be? In my case, it's writing in somebody else's case. It could be I'm going to go out and I'm going to take pictures for an hour every day or I'm going to go into my studio and I'm going to paint for an hour. It doesn't really matter. So you have the habit, you have the the time, you have the place. Um, and then then I think the, the the thing is that you also want to find a way to measure it. And the reason I say you want to find a way to measure it is because. Visible progress is a really big motivator. Now, measure it doesn't mean, oh, how many people are giving me likes on Instagram or how many people are are reading this, but measure it in a measure in a way that you can control. So, for example, I use a thousand words. So I know for a fact that, okay, if I did this, it was a success. And the other reason that measuring it with something like that, that, that's clear, is that, uh, when you do that, because of the fact that it's clear, there's no question as to whether you've hit the goal or not. And because it's so clear, um, it amplifies the possible, it, it basically, le- in, it- like increases the possibility of you getting into a flow state because clear goals are are one of the triggers for flow. Uh, and then I I think that really it's about coming back every day. It's about showing up and saying, okay, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to you know because this is important.
0: So that really has to do with uh you know kickstarting it. That's the, the I mean more than anything, I think if nobody. Took anything else away from this other than this one first kind of starting tactic, which is by no means something that's easy. This is I mean, how long did it? T- I mean, you probably wrestled with this. You still wrestle with this occasionally.
1: I'm sure. Yeah, because, I do, man. Like, <laughs> that's, look, that's I, life. I, I, wish, I wish I could tell you that I wake up every day and like, I'm totally inspired and everything goes so perfect, which would be nonsense. I have I have had days. I have days that I miss. I have days when I don't hit the word count. Uh, I have days that get derailed by something in my personal life. It is, it is, it's not an easy thing to do. I'm not saying that, uh, you know, you do this and, and just magic happens. It's, it's work. It really is. And and so that's why one of the things I recommend people do is they start small. Um, Rather than trying to make these grand gestures and sweeping changes or, or massive changes, you start small. So for example, I tell people to start with the smallest possible thing they can do. If you, for example, want to develop a daily writing habit, don't even commit to writing every day, commit to opening up your notebook every day. Uh, Because if you do that, once you've done that for enough days in a row, what will happen is your brain will say, well, now I'm sitting down to do this. I might as well just write, set up one trigger and then you add on. It's okay. Trigger one, trigger two and so on. Exactly. Exactly.
0: That's good. That's good. I mean, I would guess that, you know, you're probably at about a 90 plus percent rate where you miss but you show back up in other words that's the key yeah, yeah totally
1: I mean I even even with you know with the calm meditation app sometimes you know I remember looking at it I was like oh like I, I had a I was in Jamaica for a wedding and you know we we're getting drunk the night before. So I wasn't really thinking about meditating when I woke up in the morning and I missed two days and I broke my streak. But I think the the funny thing, is, James Clear said this as well, he said, you know, there's no evidence that shows that if you miss a single day, it will impact your ability to maintain a habit long term.
0: I mean, that's all well and good. The whole idea of fixing and starting and creating habits. I mean, this is common knowledge. Lots of people talk about this. But I think the big difference here is it's not creating a habit for now, it's it's kind of creating a, a habit to then build upon to create a lifestyle from. And there's a big difference there.
1: Yeah, I, I think what I'm talking about is living a creative life, uh, not being creative in, in just a moment in time, uh, not being creative when it's required, but being creative always. Because if you're expressing your creativity on a regular basis – as a habit, it's going to be much more easy to express your creativity when it has to be done on demand. Again, when you're being paid to do this, you don't have a choice but to show up. And there are bad days, especially because you literally are starting with a blank Google doc. And literally every time we've done this, I remember I I sit down, we go through the outline and then the day starts when I have to actually start writing the book. And that's one of the most nerve wracking days because there's literally nothing on the page. There's another
0: level to this, I think, especially when it comes to that overwhelm of having nothing on the page is we're kind of forced to sit there and figure out now not only do do I feel like I maybe have to come up with something, but even more so it's it's kind of cuz we're scared to sit and listen to ourselves as you put it in the book. We we have this current of internal struggles that are going on and we're kind of you know to sit there and discover our own truth as it is.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I I mean, the the, the inner battle in my mind is far harder than the outer battle because we're all plagued by self-doubt. We're plagued by resistance. We're plagued plagued by this internal narrative of, of, wow, you kind of suck at this, or why would anybody want to read this crap? Uh, I I don't think that uh, anybody who does this, even people who have succeeded in some capacity, get over that. So every day I face that. Uh, I think about it all the time. And the funny thing is that you think about critics and, and I, I can, the funny thing is I had another book that, uh, was a self published book that became a wall street journal bestseller. That's something like 300 five star reviews on Amazon. Do you know that the only review that I can quote by memory is this one, two star (laughs) review from this woman who said, I hope this guy is a better surfer than he is a writer. And I don't, after that, I stopped reading book reviews. But the fact is that that's the review that I'll never forget. It's the review that I remember in vivid detail, so I don't think that just because you've uh, overcome that barrier of being vetted by a publisher or, or being picked by a gatekeeper, it that you're immune to any of the stuff that everybody else feels. I think we all feel it. I think that I would be lying to you if I didn't have moments of – say I didn't have moments of doubt. Believe it or not, I'm far more confident as an interviewer than I am as a writer. And it's funny because my, my friend Nikki was telling me – she said, you know, your books are so easy to read. She's like, you're, you're a talented writer. And I, I kind of – I was amused by that because I I didn't entirely agree with her. In fact, the the joke, the funny reason we start one of the big things that caused me to start the podcast was the fact that one of my actual interviewers actually said he's like, you're kind of an average writer, but he said, you're a really exceptional interviewer. And and so he was actually my first business partner on the podcast. And uh, it's weird. Writing is one of those things I do for myself. And if the audience happens to benefit, that's just a, a convenient fringe benefit. And I think I've gotten better as a result, but I don't think that I possess So I'll say this, if you look at certain writers and you read their work, people like my friend Amber Ray or people like Sarah Peck or people like Danny Shapiro, who I've, I've referenced throughout this conversation, they have a almost poetic gift in that when they craft a sentence, when they write something, it is very lyrical. It almost sounds like music to listen to their sentences. There's a rhythm to the way that they write that draws a reader in. Uh, And none of them are immune to to critics either. I remember Amber sharing one of her first pieces of criticism about the book and and the fact that her book was empty. Uh, But I think that they have something in that sense that I don't feel that I have. I feel that what my work has largely been the result of an ongoing practice. Like the joke I have about my writing practice is I rarely write anything worth reading. I just write a lot. And some of it happens to be worth reading. See,
0: and I'm coming from the place where I see you write stuff, whether it's either, uh, you know, on Medium or as I've come to kind of think of them, your your Facebook posts are like mini blog posts. And I really think they're great writing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's one of those things where, though, you've got these people who you know and trust well enough that if they offer you constructive criticism when it comes to what you're working on creatively – it's not just for that audience. It's still for that audience of one, but you let one more concentric circle out from just you yourself, the one, uh, actually see it and give criticism to it. And you trust them to not like crush you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's an important part of, of, of creativity because here's the thing, right, is that you definitely need critics because you don't want to create in a vacuum when you're not willing to listen to ju- to, to feedback. That's your ego at work. I have a writing coach named Robin that I work with, and Robin, you know, doesn't sugarcoat her feedback. When we worked together uh, on this book, I mean, her name is on the cover of this book for good reason. She's an incredible collaborator, but I remember the first month or two of working with her was really hard because her feedback was sometimes harsh. It was this makes absolutely no sense. This is nonsense. It took me a while to stop taking her feedback personally, but I realized that uh, her giving me that feedback was her doing the job that I hired her to do, which was to be tough on me to push me to write the best book that I could write, because you need that. And so I think that when it comes to feedback, we have to be selective about who we choose to get it from. So you know, am I going to take feedback from the woman who wrote the two star review? No. Am I going to take the feedback of Robin who will call me on when I, I try to mail it in? Yes, absolutely. Because she's being paid a lot of money to make sure that I write the best possible book that I can. So I, my job is to listen to her. Even if I if I feel offended by what she says, or even if I don't agree sometimes, it's still important that we actually pay attention. And so I I have a sort of set group of people who kind of are, are my reviewers of anything I do. And and usually it's my agent, my, my editor, and Robin, my my writing coach. So I and of course, you know, I vet some of it via Facebook to see whether it resonates or not. So some of what you you know read an audience of one, I've probably shared in, in like little sections, maybe two or three sentences via Facebook, just for kind of testing whether this notion resonates a little bit. That's about the only thing I do as far as public feedback. I I don't think it's smart to get excessive amounts of public feedback. I think that you should have a selective group of people who you choose to say, okay, this is the peer group whose feedback I'm going to value the most.
0: It's funny because when you were talking about ego for a second there, it almost hit me that, and I'm going to test out this theory and that's all it is, but it's almost like there's two ends of a spectrum where you land in ego land where one is is i create this stuff that's so good it's for everybody it's for mass consumption and it's going to be amazing and you care so much about the audience which is what this book is not about and then the other end of the spectrum is this uh i create for only me but you take it internal so much that it's i don't let anyone see it at all and my vision is the the best perfect possible vision there is for this this work and then after it's done i'll put it out there and you're and really it's that middle ground of the audience of one and then a couple more that are trusted
1: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yeah you're you kind of hit the nail on the head kill the ego in, in on both sides of the
0: spectrum have a little humbleness and uh accept some trusted uh criticism and feedback and again that's something that again do do very um selectively strategically and, and honestly it that's going to be born out of relationships exactly so and, and a community and even a team so yeah man I, I this is one of those things where i and i could continue to talk about this and by the way like you you had said like it's it's you know Some books, they do the whole thing where they they spend most of their time inspiring you, and then there's very little practical. This book, actually, I feel like it's almost more practical through and through percentage-wise than it is inspirational about it. Like You make the case like we've done here – uh, very clearly and very succinctly, right up front, and then unpack it over and over again as you add practical tips about how you switch over to creating this fulfilling lifelong creative practice, whether it bears quote monetization roots or fruits or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, you know, it's just that whole um, you know bug of the Gita saying you know you're entitled, uh, you're not entitled to the fruits of your labor, but you are entitled to your labor.
0: It, it, this is the kind of thing that where people who are uh, again who want to have a deeper productivity to their lives, especially when it comes to creative output, which again I think most people really are hungering to have in their lives. They just won't accept that it's possible or uh, dare to go there. Again, like the guy that was list- who said he had to stop listening uh, to your show. It it, it kind of dares you. It says, look, these people are doing things that are possible, and it's possible for you too. But if you you know don't entertain that, like you're, you're just not going to go there. But I think this is, I think this book really does set it up as possible because we see you do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, almost like a hey, if he can do it, we can do it. Totally. So I, I really the book is coming out uh, by the time this drops. It's around for pre-order. It already is. I want people to go grab it. Is there any kind of bonuses or anything anywhere yeah, people should go? Yeah, we put
1: together some really cool pre-order bonuses. We put together a focus book and productivity guide uh, that I've compiled some of the best ideas from unmistakable creative guests. You'll get a 12 Rules for Creativity Illustrated poster uh, PDF. But if you order five books, we'll actually send you a print. Uh, but yeah, tons of tons of other stuff. Cool. Um, so,
0: um where where should we send people I mean I know everybody's so, like anywhere the books, books is, are sold but like Yeah
1: pretty much I mean Amazon is is one of the first places that probably comes to mind and then the other thing I would say is um the other place is unmistakablecreative.com slash audience is where you can find more about the book and then the pre-order bonuses and everything else that we put together.
0: Awesome, And I'll link everything up in the show notes so that people can find that as long as, as well as, uh, some of the books that we talked about in this conversation too. So, uh, Srini and as well as I'll link to your show, cause again, I shouldn't be naive and think that everybody's heard of your show. They really need to go listen (laughs) to it. Like, it it amazes me. Like, again, uh, podcasts are one of those things where it's like people have listened to one and then they don't know about other ones. And, you know, discovery in that realm is kind of still hit or miss. But uh, Mm. I'll link up to that as well. Everybody should be listening to your show, too. So awesome. Thanks for being here. This has been fun. I mean, I can't wait till at some point we can uh, hang out in person again. But uh, until then, digital is always nice.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me and uh, really appreciate it. So there's a number of takeaways from this episode, but I'm curious most
0: as to what yours is. And you can go to the show notes for this episode at beyondthetodolist.com slash 234. There you'll find the comment section beneath the show notes, and you can leave a comment as to what your biggest takeaway was. But I really think the biggest takeaway for me is, is I need to solidify more of the pieces of my creative practice, specifically with getting into the flow state more as well as creating collaboratively because that's always a strength for me. I like to talk things out with people and work a little bit harder on things, uh, pushing them beyond where I can take them just by myself. That's actually one of the things that I learned on a weekend where I went out of town with a couple guy friends and we sat down and we did a bunch of different work walking around town and creating, coming up with brainstorming ideas, solidifying plans for different things. It was great. That would not be as big of an out- Output for me myself alone, but because I had collaborative creative effort put in there, it was a much more fruitful experience. And that's just one aspect of the creative lifestyle. I hope that you can see how I keep saying like this book is the antidote to some of the things that we've probably believed were true but are wrong, like that eventually the work that you do is going to be something that you hate doing, or that it has to make it big, or it's not worth doing, among many other things. So again, go to the show notes over at beyondthetodolist.com slash 234. Let me know what your biggest takeaway was. While you're there, again, think of that person that you know needs to hear this conversation and check out this book and Unmistakable Creative, the podcast, and share this with them. Share this episode with them. While you're there, you can also check out the sponsors that make this episode possible, Babbel. You can try Babbel for free by going to Babbel, dot com. You can download the app and try it for free or sign up free there at Babbel.com. And Gusto, where if you sign up today, you'll get three months free When you run your first payroll, just go to gusto.com slash beyond. Thank you to Babbel and Gusto for supporting this episode of Beyond the To-Do List. And thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation and subscribe if you have not yet before. And with that, I will see you next episode.